Well, good morning. There is a story of an author who goes up to the Napa Valley wine country to learn about the winemaking process. And some of you are probably going, oh, I love where this illustration is going. <laughs> and the author goes up there and interviews the master wine vintner and begins to hear all about the winemaking process. That the first part of the process is you've got you to figure out the soil, get the rocks off the land and get that prepared. And, and that that can cost anywhere from $60,000 to $100,000 per acre just to plant, that just to plant. And then after that, once you've planted, it takes about 6,000 plus at minimum per acre to continue to maintain the vineyard. He says it's a really detailed, very intricate process. He goes, but one thing is for certain that the vine dresser, the person who holds the shears is the most important person on the vineyard. It's the person who makes all the cuts on the vines and they have to be very precise, very detailed. For example, you can look at a vine or a branch and it could look dead and that is actually the one that you don't want to touch. That's the one teeming with life. And then there could be a branch that is full with grapes and that's actually the branch that you need to cut. You need to cut that particular one. He said one thing though that is for certain is that if you cut the wrong branch in the wrong way, there's a potential that you won't produce fruit. Or that you could produce bad fruit. And bad fruit means bad wine. Some of you are going, oh, I don't like where that illustration went. (laughs) Today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, particularly the story of the fig tree. It's part of the the chapter that can be overlooked. It's it's highly symbolic. And it's it's a part of the chapter that we actually should cause us to re-examine our lives and how we live them. And so as we look at the text today, I want to pose a question to you. Does your life bear fruit? Does your life bear fruit? And I'm going to unpack what all that means. But before I do that, I want to to set the scene for our text this morning. It's it's a very tense scene. It's a hectic scene. It begins with Jesus' triumphal entry on his way to Jerusalem. And he's greeted with a crowd, a massive crowd. And they're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. In our present day terms, it's God save the king, essentially. And it says that the crowd is stirred, which means that they're agitated. And that word stirred is like, they're shaken like an earthquake. So it's a mixed emotion going on within the crowd. And then after this, Jesus goes into the temple and he, he throws over the temple uh, chairs and he's kicking out the money changers. I mean, he is hostile in this moment. He heals the blind and the lame in the next scene. He gets into it with the religious leaders after this. And they say that they are indignant with him. They're annoyed. They're angry with Jesus. And then he curses this poor little fig tree on the way, he gets into the, with, with the religious leaders one more time, and then the chapter ends with two parables. That is the setting for our text today. So we're going to be re- reading out of chapter 21, starting in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they were marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I mean, at first glance, we see Jesus cursing this fig tree, and we might even say to ourselves, gosh, Jesus, don't you think that was a bit excessive? It's just a fig tree. 
And then I wonder if the disciples are just kind of mumbling to themselves, does he seem a bit off to you? <laughs> I mean, he's throwing over tables yesterday. He's kicking people out. He's getting into it with the religious leaders. And I wonder if one of the disciples goes, I wonder if he's just hangry. I mean, text does say he was hungry. I mean, we've all been hangry at one point. But we know that Jesus, when he does a miracle, whether it's a negative miracle or a positive miracle, that it's very, very intentional. So what does Jesus want us to know from him cursing this fig tree? I think there's two things that are highly symbolic. The first is that he's foreshadowing an end to the sacrificial system. The system that you would bring an animal to the temple, you would sacrifice it, and this would be the atonement for your sins. This is going away. Why? Well, Jesus becomes that final and ultimate sacrifice for us. He dies on our behalf for our sins. But the second thing that's happening that is so important for us to recognize and see is that he's highlighting the unfruitfulness of Israel. Maybe not all of Israel, but most certainly its leaders, its Pharisees, its Sadducees, those whose lives have become hardened and against the ways of God, they lack any semblance of the character of God in their lives. They have simply become a religious group of people. And we see a snapshot of this in which Jesus heals the, the blind and the lame, and their response to that is that they're, they're annoyed and they're agitated with Jesus. They don't care about the great work he's doing in the lives of others. They want to maintain their power, their systems, their way of life. They don't want to change. They want to maintain their circles, their wealth, their status. They were the elites. They didn't want that changing. And Jesus comes in and he's disrupting all of that. They've forgotten that they're the ones that were to bring the blessing to all people. They have not been those people. They've become religious people with hardened hearts. And they can't even see God and run right in front of them. They go into the temple. They come out of the temple. They follow the Torah to the T. Yet their hearts, their character are so far from God. They don't produce fruit in their lives. And fruit is a really big deal to God. Here's just a handful of verses that point to this importance. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? John 15, 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. And then Colossians 1, 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. These are just a handful of verses of a number of verses in Scripture that point to the fact that fruit matters to God. You know them to be my disciples by their fruit. So Jesus comes upon this poor fig tree. He curses it. And I don't know if you caught this, but he curses it in Beth Page of all places. This just shows you the brilliance of Jesus. Because Beth Page means the house of unripe figs. He's connecting Israel to being unfruitful. The connects, he's connecting both of those to this. He's drawing the connection that the house of Israel, that they no longer are bearing fruit. And because of that, God's judgment has come upon him. So the question that we should all be asking, 
is if this really matters to God, what does it look like to live a fruitful life? What does it look like to live a fruitful life? At one point in my journey with Jesus, I was involved in a number of different ministries. And along the way, I was, I was convinced that, man, the, the only fruit that you needed to bear in your life was if you're converting people to Jesus, if your ministry was growing, gosh, you just got to grow your ministries. And by all accounts, when I was a part of these ministries, those things were, were happening. But if you looked at my inward life, I was like that branch that was teeming with grapes and fruit. But it was the branch that needed to be pruned because my inward life, my character, just wasn't being transformed by God. I wasn't drawing more into the character, into the character of God. And unfortunately, we see this with Christian leaders all the time. We look at these ministries and their ministries are growing. They're, they're great ministries. And, and by all accounts, we look at them and say, gosh, that, that man is living or woman is living, living this out. They're bearing a ton of fruit for Jesus. But then give it some time and then a, a news article comes out and we recognize and realize that that person actually wasn't living this life out at all. And the fruit that they, bearing, they were bearing, was it any fruit that God wanted? There's more to fruit than just accomplishing, even if it's accomplishing for God. In fact, Sky Jathani in his book, uh, what, was, what If We Took Jesus seriously, seriously, captures this so well when he interviews a pastor. He says, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, we will recognize people by what they produce. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. The problem illustrated by the pastor I interviewed is that we often look at the wrong fruit. We're culturally conditioned to assess people, including ministry leaders, by their professional success. How effective is she? How many people have been impacted? How much has she achieved? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it's clear that the fruit Jesus is looking for is defined by character, not accomplishments. It's defined by our character, not our accomplishments. This is why judgment has come on Israel. They lacked character. They were all about their religious accomplishments. I, go to, I, learn, I know the Torah. I follow the Torah. I go to temple. Look at my life. Look at how religious I am. Yet they lacked the character. And this is a hard pill for us type A's to swallow. We want to do. We want to accomplish. So then what can a fruitful life begin to look like? I think it looks different for all of us. I think for the person who deals with, with hatred and anger that over time as they grow in Jesus, that, that you begin to see a change in them and they begin to be, be more loving and look like loving, God-fearing people. I think for others who are in constant despair and deep sadness that over time their lives begin to change and to shift and they actually look like people of joy. Or for those who live in fear all the time and are wrestling with that sense of, of purpose that over time that God just overshadows them and they have this sense of peace about them. And you see that in them. For others it could be lust, it can be greed. I mean the list goes on. And the ways this can be shown. But all of that points to people bearing fruit in their lives. That shift in them that you can tangibly see. That is fruit being born right before your eyes. Sky goes on to say this, which is super powerful. Our old selves must be uprooted and a new self planted in God. We must become trees rooted in God and thriving on His Spirit. Then we will naturally, even effortlessly, Produce his good fruit. 
It's our deep roots in Christ and who he is that we begin to produce things in us that we never thought was even possible. This is why it points to a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the product of following Christ and the change in your life is the fruits of the Spirit pouring out from you. So what steps can we take in our lives to begin to bear good fruit? Sticking with the illustration of farming, the metaphor of farming, I think Jesus wants us to do this. Any of you composters out there? We got one. Yeah, I didn't think you were the composting group. Yeah. If you think about the concept of composting, right, you're taking things in your life that are no longer going to be fruitful. They're dying. They're basically dead. You're taking eggshells and lettuce and you're taking banana peels and you're throwing them on this pile of dirt and leaves. It's essentially a pile of death, right? And what happens to this pile of death? Chemistry. You didn't think I was going to say that, did you? Chemistry happens. Yeah. And what happens to it? It turns into amazing soil, soil that you can plant, seeds that can grow into fruit and vegetables and all these things that we get to consume and delight in. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He's going to want us to take things from our lives that are hindering us from being able to produce fruit and put them on this compost pile at his feet to say, Jesus, take these from me. Turn it into amazing soil that I can bear fruit for you. So what needs to be composted in your life? It's going to look different for all of us. For some of us, it could be relationships. Relationships that hinder us from actually engaging in this. It could be patterns of thinking that just need to kind of go away, be thrown on the pile. Unhealthy relationships, overconsumption of alcohol, pornography, the, the attachment to wealth and status that just devastates families because the pursuit of it, just those things just get thrown by the wayside. For the younger generation, it's sleeping with the person who's not your spouse. Right? All these things can be hindering you from producing a life of fruit. Fear, hatred, resentment, all those things needs to be thrown on the compost pile. And can I pause for a moment and just speak to the older generation for a second? Ones with a little more gray hair than me. Can I do that? I got the mic. I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> can I just say that I think there's a way of thinking that needs to go on the compost pile for some of you, and that is the thinking that you're too old to have impact at our church, or that you don't have purpose here. I, I think it needs to go on the compost pile. Can, and you might be saying, oh, that's, that's great, I th thanks for the pep talk, but I don't know if I buy that. Can I tell you a story? I'm gonna do it anyways. So <laughs> back when I was in my previous church context, I was invited to go to a conference uh, called Growing Young. It was at Fuller Seminary, and three of my professors that I had uh, wrote this book. And the premise of the book was that older generations uh, need to be with the younger generation, and both can mutually be in this, in this discipleship relationship, learning from one another. The wisdom from the older generation needs to be passed down to the younger, and the younger needs to kind of update the older generation on what's, what's going on in life, because it's crazy out there. And I, and I went to this conference, and I thought, this is a fascinating concept. I actually, I want to see if this works. I mean, we paid to go. We might as well see if this works. And so I said, we're going to experiment with this, because when you experiment, you can't fail. So we experimented, and I said, 
All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite 10 older individuals, older, older grand adults to our high school group, and we'll just have them come, observe, and see how it goes. So 10 of them came to our high school group, and I said, you don't even need to talk to the students. Just watch what we do and observe. So they came, they watched, they just sat there, and, you know, at the end of the time, they said, gosh, we just, we love what, what's going on in these ministries, and so great. I said, do me a favor. Come back one more week. That's all I ask, one more week. So they came back one more week. And at the end of it, I said, I'd like to get coffee with you individually next week. And so each one of them I took out for coffee, and, and I said, thanks for coming. And I said, here's what I want to ask from you. Will you commit to one year serving as a small group leader with these high school students? And out of the ten, four of them said yes. And fast forward two months later, and they're fully involved. And I said before this to them, I said, I I'm going to equip you. I'm going to resource you. You're going to know everything about TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, everything you that's just pointless to know about. You're going to know about it. I'm going to give you all the books. You're going to go in and you're going to feel good about this. And so four of them committed. And again, after, after two months, there was a group of girls in the worship center. And they were the junior class. And they were kind of a tougher group of girls to get through to and then all of a sudden I'm sitting there and, and I hear three times super loud, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm going, what? What's going on in there? And all of a sudden one of the girls walks out and I go, what, what happened in there? And she said, in Nancy's family, a woman who said yes to volunteering, she said, after they pray, uh, they say, I love you three times in their family. And so we're going to start doing that. Well, that's awesome. Then the next girl walks out, and she looks at me. She goes, Cody, super loud, interrupted everything I was doing. Nancy's the best thing that's ever happened to us. <laughs> that's awesome. See, these relationships were changing, and why did that happen? Well, Nancy took off the fear that she had no purpose anymore, that she couldn't impact the younger generation, and put it on the compost pile. In fact, two months after this, Nancy got sick, and all the girls texted her, they wrote her, they sent her flowers, they sent her cards, all these incredible things. And it just showed this relationship thing actually, actually worked. It was beautiful. And then Nancy says to me one night, now mind you, Nancy's in her 80s at this point. She says to me, Cody, I've never felt more alive than I do now. I've never felt more alive than I do now. Nancy took the fears that she had, she put them on the compost pile, and she said, I'm, I'm going to do it. She became this fruit-bearing person. That's not to say she wasn't already bearing fruit. God was calling her to bear a new kind of fruit, a fruit she couldn't even imagine or envision. What needs to be composted in your life? What needs to be composted in your life? There are two things that happen when you compost. The first is this, is that you're essentially surrendering more of your life to Jesus. You're saying no to your ways, you're saying yes to God's way, and you're saying I'm, I'm trusting you with all this, I'm throwing it off, and I'm following you. There's a spiritual mentor of mine who helped me at a period of time that I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do next, and he, he wrote a book called Stuck. And the principle of the book was to help uh, church leaders and other leaders through transition to help identify what their purpose is in aligning with God's uh, purpose for their life in this new season that was coming up. And one of the phrases from his book that stood out to me was that the prize of surrender is revelation. Can you say that with me? The prize of surrender 
is revelation. Because when you surrender, when you begin to throw those things on the pile, things start to happen and change in your life just like it did for Nancy. You become this metaphorical ripe fig tree bearing incredible fruit that you never imagined. And there was a change not only in Nancy's life where she began to see the power that God had given her, the gifts that he had given her, the wisdom he had given her. But you got to see the character of the, of the junior girls begin to change as well because it was just these relationships that were taking place. She thought her sole purpose was just to greet on Sundays. Greeting's great. There's nothing wrong with that. God was just calling her to bear a new type of fruit. Isn't that the goal after all? The second thing that happens when we compost is that we're creating more space to abide in him to encounter Jesus, to be with Jesus, to be molded by Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus. And you might be thinking, gosh, code, this is easier said than done. You don't know my life. You don't know the patterns I have. You don't know the addictions. You don't know what I need to keep up and keep going in my life. You're right. I don't. But I think if we're going to do this, you need to know it's possible. But you need to know two things about our Savior. The first is this. We have a Savior that wants to carry our compost piles. We have a Savior who wants to carry our compost piles. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, if you were to look back, you would see that Jesus doesn't ride in on a magnificent war horse. He comes in on a what? A donkey. A donkey of all things. He's subverting kingship. He's, he's, he's showing what he is to be a servant king. And one thing we know about donkeys, they weren't known to be powerful, powerful animals. And this is, again, the brilliance of Jesus. He's showing that the whole purpose of a donkey was to carry the, the workload, to carry the burden. And in the same way, Jesus wants to do that for us. He wants to carry our compost piles. He wants to carry those things for us so that we can produce this great fruit. And you might need to throw things on the compost pile repeatedly and over time. But one thing you, you need to know is you cannot do this on your own. You need Jesus to be able to do this for you. Tim Keller says this amazing quote. He says, Jesus, in this moment of his triumphal entry, he's forcing people's hands. You're either going to crown him, crucify him, accept him, or reject him. The religious leaders rejected him, and that's why judgment falls upon them. And judgment can fall upon us as well. The second thing you need to know about our Savior is that he empowers us to do this. That he empowers us to do this, to do these things. It says at the very end of chapter 21, it says, Truly I say to you, and when Jesus says truly I say to you, he's saying, hey, I mean what I'm saying. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Is he saying that you and I can literally go throw a mountain into the sea? No, we can't literally do that. It's a Jewish metaphor to say that all the difficult, all the impossible things in your life that you, can't, you don't see are possible, guess what? They're possible through Jesus in prayer and in faith. Through prayer and through faith. He's going to empower you to do so. 
Do you see the type of Savior that we have? He's a Savior that wants to carry our compost pile. He's a Savior that wants to empower us. And He's a Savior that wants to allow us and provide us a life that bears really good fruit. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so grateful for the Savior that you are. That you're a Savior that loves us, that cares for us. You're a Savior that can take all the dead things in our lives that are on the compost piles. And you can turn that into amazing soil. Soil that produces incredible, incredible fruit. And so Jesus, we look to you through our faith and prayer to empower us, to equip us so that we might live lives that bear fruit and point to your goodness and your love. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.